Um, Genesis 3, as Michael said, we're going to read the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here this morning as your people and we pray that as we look at Genesis 3 now that you would remind us of our sinfulness and your abounding grace. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, what influence does God play 
over what happens from day to day. Is he in control? Does he intervene? Does he care? Is he active? Now, we've had a pretty ordinary couple of years, uh, the last, couple of, uh, last um, two years. We're still battling through a once-in-a-century pandemic that has killed millions and has strained to the brink billions around the globe. We're in the middle of an incredibly volatile period of international tension that feels something like a tinderbox right now, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Second World War. And then if we come right close to home, we're all aware of people who are having a rough time, injured, grieving, out of work, in pain. Now, sometimes it feels like it's just plain chaos on every single level of life. Well, there was a point when it wasn't, when it was good. And today we look at that inflection point when it all turned on one moment. Genesis 3, or the fall, is a much misunderstood story. It's rarely studied and a lot of it is presumed. There's a lot of cartoons about the fall. They inform our knowledge of the story. You've got the apple, you've got the snake, and you've got the appropriately arranged tufts of leaves and foliage for modesty. But what we have here is nothing short of horrifying. It is when sin entered God's very good world. It is when everything started to unravel, when the world started to groan. It is when childbirth became painful and work became hard and toilsome and took its toll. It is when death entered the world. It is a moment of more gravity than we can ever imagine as the world turned on a dime into the hands of sin and frustration and mourning and chaos and death. But it didn't start like that. It was very good. Well, three weeks in, and we're still in the beginning. We're not quite sure how long has passed between Genesis 3 and the end of Genesis 2, but as we have learned so comprehensively over the past couple of weeks, it is not time that we should be focusing on here. It is the substance, and more importantly, the creator of the substance. But whilst time is not as important in this corner of the scriptures, context is always important. At the end of Genesis 2, we have the beauty of man and woman brought together as husband and wife, one flesh. And we have them being naked and feeling no shame. There is a complete openness between one another and between them and God. And we learned last week that this is the understanding of our identity. We are made in God's image to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth and to rule over the creation as God's image bearers. The unit by which that happens has now been clearly spelled out here in Genesis 2 with the coming together of man and the woman, his helper, equal in their image before God and complementary to one another. And the family unit is ingrained here. Genesis 2.24, the man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the designated unit block by which the creation mandate will be fulfilled. And with the tree of life available to prevent the death of anyone, there's no reason why the task can't be completed very quickly. The start of Genesis 3 then is framed with the potent potential of what God has created, the means by which to do what they have been commanded to do together. We are primed for the starter's gun to go and for the man and woman to go forth and conquer. And then we get Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the serpent wanted one thing from the man and the woman, disobedience. And to get there, he chose the pathway of sly deception. From the outset, the serpent's intent is to reduce clarity, to cast aspersions, to cause doubt, and to bring into question the integrity of the Lord God and his commands and his good plans for his creation. Now, the Lord God had given the man and woman freedom in the garden. So much freedom, in fact, that they were also free to disobey. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free, free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman answers with what God has said. But if you notice in the woman's response, she has added to the command by a little bit. You must not touch it. That wasn't part of the original command in Genesis 2. It was a magnification of the rule, an increase in its perceived strictness. Well, the serpent moves onto the front foot, so to speak. You will not surely die. Now, this is a direct affront to the command and consequence that God has originally put forward. You will die, God says, if you eat the fruit of the tree. No, you won't, says the serpent. That's not true. In fact, if you eat of it, things will be even better than very good. In fact, you're being shielded from even more. God doesn't want you to have something, and that is bad for you. You won't die. And there's plenty more goodies for you if you disobey. That was the counterbid. Now the woman thought about this. She pondered on the counterbid. The fruit is delicious. It does look good. And you get wisdom to boot. Our eyes will be opened. And we will be like God. 
knowing good and evil. Well, what is it to know good and evil? Now, some think that this means they all of a sudden had moral discernment. But it can't be that. Because they already knew that to obey God was good and to disobey was evil. Knowing right and wrong, then, is not the issue, and we can see that by what the woman articulated to the serpent in her answer. As it stood, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offered the alternative to God's way. It offered the opportunity to do it yourself, to decide what right and wrong was, to be themselves those who define what is good and what is evil, absent of God's input, to be disobedient to God's command. And the emphasis here should not be on the tree and what kind of magical properties it imparts if you eat it. It probably was, by all accounts, just a tree that God chose. The emphasis should be on the fact that God has said you must not eat from it. To eat of it is a direct defiance and disobedience. It is the desire to define good and evil for myself, to be my own king, to call the shots myself. Well, the woman listened to the created rather than the creator. She followed her impressions rather than her instructions and she made self-fulfilment her goal. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Well, the eyes of both of them were opened. Maybe there was something to this fruit. Their eyes were open and there is newfound knowledge. They were naked and so they cover themselves. Now at the end of Genesis 2, we have the description of marriage and the man and the woman both being naked and feeling no shame. And now, seven verses later, they cover themselves up. It is so, so sad. Given the context of what has come before and the build-up of this passage, the fall of mankind and that woeful attempt to crawl it back is heartbreaking. And what happened at that point in time? You can imagine that it is the oh-no moment in the movie. The pulse of sin and death heaved and then quaked through the depths of the earth. Sin stormed into the world. It ripped through and contorted creation. Before it was very good and now, on the turn of one decision, it isn't. Verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The Lord God knew what had gone on. But instead of trying to drive him out or to snare or to entrap, the Lord God simply seeks to draw out the man. He comes to seek and save the lost. Where are you? He offers. And for the second time in scripture, we hear the voice of the man and we hear him speak of fear and of shame. Verse 10. 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's like a bunch of kids fighting in the playroom. And when you turn up at the door, they all point the finger at each other. And no level of diplomatic skill on your part is going to get the answer right and for all parties to drop their weapons and be happy. God didn't have that problem. In fact, the precision of the whole account of the fall is really quite amazing. It is quick, it's efficient, it is rhythmic and symmetrical. Serpent, woman, man, man, woman, serpent. The sin is quick. The blame is even quicker and the punishment is as efficient as you could get and God doesn't skip a beat and before you know it, the man and the woman are walking away from the garden. But the finger pointing shouldn't be passed over. The creation order here is mirror reversed, a literal reversal of how God has designed it to be serpent telling the woman what to do, who in turn gives it to the man to eat. But it is the man who is accountable here. It was his failure at all levels. Where was the man when the creatures he was supposed to rule over were trying to bring down his wife? Well, he was right there. Where was the man when the woman was deceived and he did nothing to convince her otherwise? He was silent. Instead of speaking, warning, intervening, protecting, he silently condones her actions and then directly disobeyed God by participating in them. Adam is pivotal in this. Because if you notice, in verse 7, it was then, at that moment, as the man sunk his teeth into the fruit, that the damage was done. The original recipient of the command, the man, broke the command and that was the tipping point for him and for all mankind in a moment. He blames the woman, but with his back right in the corner, he then also blames God for the woman that he had put there with him. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals.'" You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The serpent is cursed, inhabiting the space that he inhabits. 
There is now enmity between the serpent and the woman. This will be one long battle between good and evil. And he will crush your head and you will, he will, you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15 there is the first glimmer of the gospel in the scriptures. Nestled right there at the end of the curse on the enemy. But more on that later. The woman will have greatly increased pains in childbirth. The creation mandate will now be one that is identified with pain. Through pain will the next generation be born and on and on. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now it's worth reflecting on the ideal of the marriage relationship that is presented in Genesis 2. To the man was given a woman to be his ultimate companion and helper. And as we reflect on sin and me doing things on my terms, this helps us to understand that this phrase could mean both a woman's desire for the position of the man or it could mean a determination to take the creation mandate into their own hands. It could be power or it could be sex. You will want of the man and he will exercise his rule over you. Both is a contortion of their position and both is saying me on the throne and certainly not you and certainly not God. It's me on the throne calling the shots. It is when we care more about how the other does their job is when the problems start arising. It is to destabilise the way that God has set it out to be. And I don't think I'm alone when I say that we can all see that, can't we? This is the effects of sin. This is what we have to live with now. We have to live with tension in our relationships, of frustration over roles and how we do life together. We have to live with squabbles and power dynamics and we have to live with abuse and violence. It is far from ideal and it is horrible to see. And finally to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Subduing the earth will be a painful toil. It will be hard and gruelling and it will, it will be like the earth is working back against you. Now notice that God cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground. He didn't curse the man or the woman. But what he did do was to make their mandate hard. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over creation. Having kids would hurt. Working to survive would hurt. And from now on, all that humanity needs to do just to keep going would be painful. And then the painful reality that has now come into stark focus was that there would be a point when we wouldn't just keep going. You will die. Whereas before there was no end to your life, now there is an end. You will die. Well, can you imagine those next few minutes of Adam and Eve walking slowly and despondently away from the Garden of Eden under the determined but gutted command of the Lord God, afraid to look at one another for regret 
of what they had done and the hollowness of what life lay before them. Their minds racing with remorse, thinking about what if, what if I'd done this, what if. This is a tragedy. Not three chapters in and the created rebels against the creator and now walks away from the very good garden, never able to return to that place. We should be very, very upset at the genesis of sin. But not so much that we think we wouldn't have done the same thing. We would have done exactly the same thing. That is what our lives betray to each other every day. Sin should horrify us in the way that it no doubt deeply disappointed and hurt the Lord God. But we must not come to this passage with a sense of pride. We would have done exactly the same thing. And in any case, we're under the same sinful cloud. Is God in control here? Is he active? Well, yes, he is. Because nothing here was a surprise to God. He didn't leave for the weekend and then come back and the kids had had a big house party and thought, oh dear, what are we going to do? It wasn't a shock as the Lord God walked through the garden to find his children. It wasn't a surprise. But it was sickeningly disappointing and heartbreaking, just as every bit of rusted-on sin is to each and every one of us. But God was ready As sin entered the world, God's grace rose to meet it and in time to beat it. God's grace is not absent from this chapter. No, God's grace abounds as he came looking for them. His grace abounds as he listened to them and his grace abounds even when he is punishing them and banishing them from the garden. As sin enters the world, grace abounds and more than matches it. How? Well, he didn't kill them straight away. He could have. And by his own command, he would have been well within his rights to do so. But he gave them time. Time to reflect. Time to repent. Time for offspring. As sin entered the world, grace abounds and more than matches it. How? Well, he came looking for them. In their sin and their shame and fear, he asked, where are you? He didn't hunt them down, nor did he flail them from tree to tree. He asked for them to come to him as he came to look, to seek and save. As sin enters the world, grace abounds and more than matches it. How? Well, he clothed them. He didn't leave them with a few fig leaves sewed together. In a chilling first, he provides skins for clothing, killing was now a part of how things happen and other parts of creation are put to use to solve temporary fixes to our problems. As sin enters the world, grace abounds and more than matches it. How? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The man had let the sin out of the bottle and it is impossible to get back in. But nothing is impossible for God. For from this very moment, he directs us to start looking for the offspring of the woman who will crush 
the head of the serpent. It starts in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, looking at some of Adam and Eve's kids. They keep looking in Genesis 5 and then Genesis 9 and then Genesis 11. We get to Abraham. We know that there is hope here somewhere. And then we get all the way through to Matthew 1 where another one of those boring genealogies goes from Abraham through to David and then all the way through to a guy called Joseph whose wife was Mary and whose son was our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 18 says this, Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And then the next chapter, Romans 6 verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Sin entered the world and the grace of God abounds to decisively defeat it. Not here in Genesis 3, although the fumes of grace below, but at the cross of Jesus. That is where we find the serpent crusher. That is where we find forgiveness for our sins. That is where we see God in control, active and sorting out the chaos that our sin brings to this world. And it is where we hear our Lord calling out to us, where are you? Well, Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Will you come to him? Will you confess your sin and ask for his forgiveness? Will you accept his definition of what is right and what is wrong and allow him to give you life? That is his outstretched arm, his offer to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus, for your outstretched arms of forgiveness, for your love, your mercy and your grace. Lord, we can see the effects of sin around us. We're convinced on a daily basis that we are not right with you, and yet you came to us and sought us out through the death and resurrection of your Son. Thank you for Jesus, Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.